Good morning, everyone. So good to be in the presence of the Lord with his people. Just as a brief testimony, that hymn that we sang at the end was early on when I was a young believer. I remember hearing the words for the first time, hallelujah, what a savior. That I was the guilty one, he was the righteous one. And the tears just flowed down my face. As I just realized that it was was for me that he did this. And that will be our joyful song forever. Hallelujah. What a savior. I want to give a brief update. What's going to be happening in a couple weeks? You can see we're starting to decorate the campus. As you look in your sermon outline, you have a little schedule. And what's going to happen with all of that? Well, there'll be more to it than this, but this just gives you the starting times for each day. On Thursday evening, there'll be just a reception. We can greet our missionaries, and we're going to show the Jesus film, which is the most produced and most translated film in the history of mankind. Had a chance to come and see how, what tool that God has used to bring the gospel to literally millions uh, around the world. And then Saturday, I'm sorry, Friday, the missionaries will be with our kids at OCS all day. But we're going to come back on Friday evening, and we're going to hear from one of our missionaries uh, what's going on uh, in the world. And then after that, the, there'll be a concert on solid ground featuring our own Rick Gentry. Do I see Rick here this morning? I don't see him here. And his go- Southern Gospel Singing Group will put on a concert. That concert will start at 7.30 on Friday night, but the, the meeting itself will start at 6. And then Saturday's the big day. Saturday's the day for our missionaries to really share the reports, what's happening in different places like Spain and India and with the Japanese and, and Texas, uh, what's been happening with Reach Global. And there'll be different workshops throughout the day, and you'll have a chance to come and interact with our missionaries on all day on Saturday, and we'll finish it with a potluck on Saturday night. Now, it says international potluck. Just, just look potluck. Just whatever food that is special to you, you want to bring and share with the family of God, that's what we'll do to celebrate that night. And then Sunday morning, we'll have a celebration of worship here with one of our missionaries bringing the message that morning, and at 11 a.m. having a, a, a Q&A time with our missionaries to hear more about uh, what they're doing and really connect with them. And so I hope you'll take the time to really connect with our missionaries during that time. Sign up, come when you can, let us know when you're coming so we can prepare the gift bags that, we're being, that are being put together, the meals that we need to prepare, the books that we want to give out. Uh, so sign up and, and come and participate and be in prayer as our missionaries are traveling from Spain, from India, from um, Congo, coming from Texas. The homeless are just coming down the hill from paradise. That's a little easier. But some will be traveling, and we're going to be hosting them for several days. If you would like, if you're interested to hear some of the impact that you've had, there, we received a couple of thank you cards over the past week and a half from those that uh, received funds from our church. We still had outstanding funds to give away in our uh, campfire and berry fire relief funds. And we were able to exhaust those funds. We found a couple of places to invest those funds. And we received thank you cards from those that were recipients. So these will be available at the welcome desk this afternoon, or, uh, right after the service, and then during the week at the office desk if you'd like to stop by and see them and just hear a word of gratitude for your generosity to people who were in need and we were able to step into the gap and help them, even if just on a temporary measure. Well, before we uh, get into the time in the Word, I encourage you to make sure your cell phones are turned to silent uh, so that as we are live streaming, we don't have interruptions going on with how we're uh, transmitting the service and we're not distracted one with another as we focus on the things of the Lord. Well, a number of years ago, 
pastor and author Robert P. Dugan Jr. was an outstanding member of the National Association of Evangelicals. And in his public works and in his public life and his role with the NAE, he advocated for evangelicals to be active in the public square of ideas. And his life and his writings, however, he called for Christians to speak out with integrity, humility, and charity, modeling the Savior that they proclaim to serve and love. But he said we also need to be careful to not speak beyond our ability and our knowledge, to stay in our lane, so to speak, where we can speak authoritatively on things that we actually know things about. And he gives a humorous example in his book, Winning the New Civil War. He talks about a religious leader of over 100 years ago who pronounced from the pulpit and in the periodical that he edited that heavier-than-air flight is impossible and contrary to the will of God. And his name was Bishop Wright. And the irony is that Bishop Wright had two sons, one named Orville and the other named Wilbur, whom we know to be the fathers and the founders of modern aviation. So Wright was wrong, but he was sure of himself. And I think we can take the example from Pastor Dugan and, and learn from the example of Bishop Wright to make sure we, we're not those that we often see in the realms of politics or philosophy and news commentary, sometimes even in the church, people who are not often right, but rarely uncertain. And that humorous anecdote then reminds us that we stay in our lane and we proclaim what is true and we proclaim it boldly and with joy and with great confidence. It also reminds us that we don't want to be that example like a Bishop Wright. And we're going to find one this morning as we continue in our study in the gospel according to Matthew. For we have the Apostle Peter who has just made an amazing statement of truth concerning the nature of Jesus Christ. The most profound declaration of truth that we have in the New Testament. And it wasn't something that originated with himself. It was something that was revealed to him by the Heavenly Father. He declared rightly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And for that statement, he is commended by Jesus. And he was given a special role to play in the formation of the early church. And we took two weeks to explore what that looked like. As he was doing what was right, Peter was used by the Lord. When he talked about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. How Peter followed Jesus and he proclaimed Jesus. And when he did it rightly, he was used of the Lord. But when he didn't. He needs to be rebuked by the Lord. And so it's an example then for us this morning. We might on the one hand be amazed at Peter's astounding level of faith and understanding. And then in the very next step, we're amazed at his profound lack of understanding when we see what we'll see in the word of God this morning. When we speak on behalf of the Lord, may it be that we speak correctly and boldly and honestly, but that we also speak with integrity and humility and charity as Pastor Dugan reminds us. So as we get ready to see the next step in what Jesus is doing with his disciples in Matthew 16, I invite you once again to stand in honor of God and his holy word as we read a few verses that we'll look at in detail this morning. Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. And the truthful and dutiful word of God 
because from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord given to us for our instruction and for our edification to learn from the example that God has given us in the life of the Apostle Peter. May the Lord give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Please be seated. And let us pray. You, O oh Lord, we turn now in these holy moments and we know that left to ourselves and our own devices, we will fail. But we're thankful as we've already sung we have a Savior who is able, who is sufficient, who is enough, who is our righteousness. And so, Father, as we lean into you and your word this morning, clothed in that righteousness of Christ, we call upon your spirit to teach and to guide us as only he can, so that we might see you in a greater light and find our hearts warmed ever more to who you are and your goodness. Teach us now, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you for taking some time to sit wherever you might be. With your Bibles open to Matthew 16, it is always good for us to know that you're there, that we can study the Word of God together. And if the Lord gives the opportunity, we look forward to having you back here soon. But if it's good for you wherever you are, then we ask the Father to bless you there in our time in the Word together. So good morning to everyone online. As I said in the intro, Peter has just given this great confession of faith, and he receives a great promise. You will be greatly used to the Lord in the formation of the New Testament church. He's given the keys to use, to exercise authority, to exercise instruction, to declare the kingdom of heaven. There's responsibility there, there's authority, but it needs to be used appropriately and properly. And as long as Peter speaks for that which is of God, he will be a blessing and used of the Lord. But when he doesn't understand, it becomes a stumbling block. And we'll see a continuation of this play on words that has happened in this dialogue between Jesus and Peter that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. It does matter what we believe. It does matter what we do. It does matter what we say. It does matter that all that we, as we proclaim to a watching world, the truth, that it be done in a way that's honoring to our great God. And if you follow along now in your sermon outline, that brings us to our first point this morning, which is a divine requirement. A divine requirement. And our text begins, from that time Jesus began. And I'm just stopping with those few words because I want to let you know what's going on here. This is a phrase that was repeated one other time in the gospel according to Matthew. It was repeated back in chapter 4, verse 17, where we were told then that, that Jesus turned his focus to Galilee. Whereas we have seen from that point until really right now in the gospel of Matthew, he has spent the majority of his time in ministry in the region of Galilee. But now that same phrase is being used to indicate another major turning point in the focus of the ministry of Jesus. 
It's a literary device that Matthew is using to show that now Jesus is turning his focus away from Galilee and going towards Jerusalem. So we see chapter 4, verse 17 said, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from that point in chapter 4 until now, we've seen that the focus has been on the crowds that have gathered to hear Jesus as he is teaching, as he's preaching, as he's presenting the kingdom of heaven, as he's performing miracles, as he is showing the works of the Messiah. But now we get to chapter 16, verse 21, and we see a very similar phrase, and now we see a different emphasis. From that time, Jesus began to show. The word show here means that He's going to teach them now what the rest of the works of the Messiah that he must accomplish, who he really is. He's going to warn the the apostles about what is to happen in the not-so-distant future. Notice the expression, he began to show. There was time that was needed for them to grow in their understanding of who he was, what he came to accomplish, what he would do, what the impact of that would be, how this would help in the formation and foundation of the church. And the fact that he would show them is an interesting word because where it is used at other times in the New Testament, it is used to indicate that a new revelation of God is coming. That God is doing something new and he's showing it. So now we're going to get new and greater revelation about what Jesus is, uh, who Jesus is, and what he will do. As commentator Michael Wilkins says, the revelation of Jesus' true identity by his heavenly father to Peter is now matched by Jesus' revelation of his true mission to his disciples. So as there's been a new revelation from heaven to Peter about who Jesus is, now Jesus will reveal to them what his true mission is and what he must do. And what is part of this new revelation that Jesus is showing? From that time, Jesus began to show that to Jerusalem we go. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And there's a key word here in the original language that is behind the word must. It's the word day. And when used in the original language, it is a divine imperative. An imperative is a command. It's a, it's a requirement. It's a divine obligation. This is something that doesn't come from human thinking. This is something that comes from divine thinking. This is something that must happen because God requires it. And so Jesus needs to prepare the apostles, the disciples, for what is to come. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. But not all understand what that means just yet. And that's why in chapter 16, verse 20, he says, don't tell anybody about this yet. He knows the crowds in Jerusalem will not understand, and as we're going to find out in short order, the apostles still don't get it. They still need to grow in their understanding. So why must he go to Jerusalem? Well, among other things, Jerusalem is the center of of Jewish life and worship. Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where the priesthood is. Jerusalem is where they're full of symbols of God's faithfulness to his people down through the centuries. And it's where he needs to accomplish that which he came to do. Jesus is preparing us as we're working through the gospel of Matthew. He's already told us in Matthew chapter 12 that he is is greater than the temple. Matthew 12, verse 6. He says that he's greater than Solomon. Matthew 12, verse 42, that he is greater than Jonah. Matthew 12, verse 41, he is the fulfillment of the law. He is showing us that he is the greater prophet and priest and king, and therefore he must go to Jerusalem to show that he is the fulfillment of all that God promised through the law and the prophets. 
disciples. And that's why in the parallel passage that we find in Luke chapter 13, Jesus says that no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He knows who he is. He knows what he must do, and he must do it in Jerusalem. And what will he do when he gets to Jerusalem? I will finish the job, he says. For our text says he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. So during this time now, he's, his focus is going to move away from the crowds that he has been teaching for a couple of years as he's nearing the end of his earthly sojourn. And he's preparing the disciples for what is to come. He needs to inform them, to prepare them, that he must suffer as the Messiah. And they need to learn that the values of the kingdom of heaven surpass and are different than the values of the kingdoms of men. On his first coming as the Messiah, the path of the Messiah is one of pain and suffering. It's one of sacrifice. And so he must go to Jerusalem to show the fulfillment of God, of what was promised through the law and the prophets, of a suffering Messiah in places like Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 and Isaiah 53. And there's many other examples that we could put here. And he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. This threefold mention of would gather all of the Jewish leaders at that time. The elders would be those that were more experienced and, and wise members who would be members of the Sanhedrin, the governing council of the Jews. The chief priests were under the control of several influential families in Jerusalem at that time. They were more in league with Rome, were more attached to the Sadducees. And the scribes, the ones who were the teachers of the law, the one who would write the commentaries on how to apply the law, would be closely associated with the Pharisees. And so you see all of the different factions of the Jewish leadership in first century Palestine coming together with the definite article, the, that is distributed to all three of those groups. The elders, chief priests, and scribes. The fullness of the leadership of official Jewish leadership were united in their opposition to Jesus. And that's in contradistinction to what we see with the, with the masses who oftentimes were curious to know more. But for the leadership, Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to their political power. He was a threat to their economic power. He was a threat to their religious privilege that they had. And so they would want to reject him. And even they didn't know that in their rejection of him and making him to suffer at their hands and then putting him on a cross and ridiculing him and mocking him and embarrassing him, they were continuing in the long tradition of what the leaders of Israel had been doing for centuries, which is the rejection of the prophets of God. And not only are they rejecting the prophets of God in the past, they're now rejecting the one to whom the prophets point and the one who is the fulfillment of those prophets. He will be rejected, despised and rejected, we're told in the Old Testament. And not only would he suffer, but he would be killed and on the third day be raised. We know because we've had the privilege of reading the scriptures for some time and having the fullness of God's word, God's word in our hands that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus knows that coming as the suffering servant, he must pay the wages of the sins of his people if they are ever to be forgiven, and that would require his suffering and death. And this is the first time of among several more times that 
Jesus predicts his death and resurrection in Matthew. And what's interesting is we'll see that these apostles needed time. They needed to grow in their understanding. They needed to have an awareness, an ongoing awareness. Is this really what must happen to the Messiah? And Jesus hints at the fact that he must suffer and die, that he would die and be raised. At least twice he used the sign of Jonah, who was a type of Christ, in that he died figuratively and was buried in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights and then he was symbolically raised from the dead but jesus would be even further than that he would actually die and be in the belly of the earth and be raised by the father and so jesus makes it very clear i must go to jerusalem and be killed and be raised and, and he uses the passive form he's dependent upon the father as Jesus came to earth, he lived out the fullness of his humanity in obedience to the law, in obedience to the prophets, fulfilling all that was required by the law as a man who could then stand in our place as the God-man, bringing God and men back together because of what he had done. And he knows it will be the power of the Father that will raise him. Now we know that Later on in the New Testament, we'll find passages that say it was the power of the Holy Spirit that raised him. And Jesus himself would say, I have the authority to lay down my life and the authority to raise it up again. But here he is the suffering servant who is dependent upon the Father and will do all that the Father requires, knowing that he can trust the Father to vindicate him by raising him from the dead on the third day. This promise of a Messiah who would come and suffer and die and be raised is the reason why he came. And we go all the way back to the beginning of the gospel according to Matthew when there is an announcement that the Messiah would be born and the angel appears to Gabriel and says, you, she shall give birth to a son and you shall call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Right from the get-go, the promise was given on why this Messiah would come. And this becomes then the central organizing theme of the New Testament. That Jesus Christ came as the perfect man, living out the righteousness that God required, in the fullness of man, in the fullness of God, in one person forever, would be the perfect sacrifice for sin. He would be the substitution for sinners. He would be the ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of guilt and sin and shame. He would be the victor over death. And it's good for us to be reminded what is the main and plain and central message of the scriptures. Well, as we do a little survey that we're going to do now, just looking at what some of the other writers in the New Testament, what did they understand to be the main theme of the scriptures? Well, Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter with whom we've spent some time the last few weeks as he writes a, a couple of epistles at the end of his life and is still learning about who Jesus is and is still learning what it means to follow him and is still learning how do we live out the gospel in the midst of being persecuted and suffering. It says Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Then we have in the Gospel of John perhaps the most well-known passage in all of the scriptures, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
And the verses go on to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And we already have the idea that the reason the world can't be condemned, all who believe in Jesus, is because Jesus will bear their condemnation on the cross. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul says, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we have testimony from various places in the New Testament that point to the central theme of the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Christ who must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised from the dead. It's a divine requirement. And we might at this point expect if Jesus says this is what must happen, we might expect then that the apostles would say, great, Let's all go in on this because if this must happen, we want to be part of what must happen. Unfortunately, Peter didn't get it. And so after the divine requirement, we have a dubious response. Jesus makes it clear that suffering must come first. Then there will be glory. And we see this intertwining of suffering and glory in many of the prophetic passages of the Old Testament and even in promises in the New Testament. And this tension will be felt because indeed the Messiah has come to show the glory of God, to display his glory, but he has come to suffer and die and be buried and raised so that then he will be glorified as the hero of heaven. So we have this famous passage in Hebrews 12. It says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. Suffering must come before glory. But for the disciples, this was too much. It was too much to imagine a suffering Messiah, a humiliated Messiah. They know what crucifixion means, and it is not pleasant to ponder It is not pleasant to think about. In fact, one of the Roman authors, Cicero, said, the idea of cross is so abhorrent, it must be far from the minds of every Roman. Even the Romans who carried it out did not want to think about the horrors of crucifixion. And so we can imagine the apostles then, they won't want to imagine a humiliated Messiah, a devastated Messiah, too painful for them. The Messiah killed? No way, all that we've heard over centuries is that When the Messiah comes, the kingdom will come, and we will reign. We'll be victorious. They can almost taste the victory. They can almost sense the liberation from economic tyranny, from military occupation. In fact, when we get to Matthew 18, they're going to even start to argue about which one of them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Which one of them will have the positions of favor in the kingdom of heaven? They're taking their time to get it. Let's learn from that, because we're made of the same stuff that they are. We have the same tendencies, the same inclinations to not quite get it, to misinterpret, to misunderstand, to make claims that don't quite hold up when we look at the Word of God. So somehow, in all this discussion, the apostles, Peter particularly, missed the most important thing that Jesus had just said. That Jesus would be raised from the dead. He missed it. He passed right over it. He couldn't get beyond the fact that the Messiah would be killed. 
And Jesus had promised, yes, I'll be killed, but I'll be raised. The Jewish people know that resurrections don't happen every day. They're unique. And yet Jesus declares this is what will happen to him. But they didn't hear it. They couldn't hear it. Their eyes and their ears were clouded by the declaration that the Son of Man would suffer and die. They didn't have a fullness of the promise that God said he would never abandon his righteous one to the grave. The promises of the Psalms and the prophets, they missed it. And so because they missed it, we find that Peter is audacious. In verse 22, it says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, who has just made a great declaration of faith and was commended for it by the Lord, now makes a major blunder in judgment. But Peter was operating according to human understanding of things because according to the Jewish understanding, the Messiah was going to be a great and glorious victor. He's a coming king. He's a conqueror. He will defeat all of God's enemies. He will restore righteousness. He will bring perfect judgment. And the Jews will reign over the earth with him. That was their expectation. He would reign over the earth, not be laid in the earth to the hands of those that he had created. And so Peter has a poor understanding of what the Messiah was going to do, even after giving a good understanding of who the Messiah is. And so in this wordplay that continues in this dialogue between Jesus and Peter and rock and foundation, we find that Peter, who is rock, is starting to crumble because he's not acting with divine knowledge. When he acted according to divine knowledge, he said that which was true. But when he doesn't, he'll show that he himself still needs to learn what it is to grow upon Christ, who is the cornerstone. And so the unthinkable happens. You see, in Jewish culture, there was a unique dynamic that took place between a teacher and the disciples. The disciples take any teacher. The disciples would pursue the teacher and say, I want to learn from you. Jesus reverses that. He calls the disciples and say, come and follow me. A teacher would be the one that would be seen as authority in Jewish culture. And a disciple would never imagine in Jewish culture to take his teacher aside with the pretension of correcting him, of putting him in his place, of challenging his teaching. He would certainly never do what Peter does here, and that is rebuke his teacher. And yet this is what Peter did. He took Jesus aside, and perhaps there was an initial friendly hope here. This, let me pull you aside here, Jesus, and let me tell you something. He doesn't like what Jesus is saying. He doesn't like what Jesus is promising. He doesn't like the, the, this profession that the Messiah now is going to suffer and be killed. He perhaps is joining like his family, who at several times in the Gospels, he, even Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. Perhaps Peter is joined in that. No, no, Lord, this will, this will never happen to you. I came across a statement from the late Christian statesman Peter Marshall that I think is helpful here. Peter Marshall said, Lord, when we are wrong, make us willing to change. And when we are right, make us easy to live with. Too bad Peter never met Peter Marshall. Because he had been right. But he didn't handle it properly. And now he is grossly wrong. He is audacious. And not only is he audacious, he's arrogant. And he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. Let that word fall on your ears again. Peter 
rebuke Jesus. The word itself means to express strong disapproval. It means to give a sharp reprimand. This word for rebuke is the exact word that Jesus used when he rebuked the winds in Matthew 8, when he rebuked the demons in Matthew 17. This is a strong word used to exercise strong authority and shows arrogance on the part of Peter. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And this, these words that are translated, far be it from you, Lord, as they're translated that way in my copy of God's word in the English Standard Version, actually come with the idea of may mercy be given to you or may heaven have mercy upon you. And so some translations translate it as heaven forbid or God forbid. No, this can't be happening, Peter says. And in the Greek, there's a double negative. We can't use that in English because it turns it into a positive. But in Greek, it's a double emphasis that this can't happen. No, not never, never. This can't happen. How does Peter claim to know the mind of Christ here? Definitely not Peter as his best. He'd gone beyond what he actually knew, what he actually understood, and got himself in trouble. At least he did use the title Lord. That was correct, even if he didn't have a full understanding of what that means. And so we could give him the benefit of the doubt, perhaps, as a devoted Jewish disciple. Well, no, Lord, I, I can't bear that you'll be humiliated in this way. You're the Messiah. You will reign over us. We will reign with you. I, I can't bear to think of you suffering. Perhaps that's part of what's going through his mind. But what's clear is he's not ready to suffer. He's ready to reign. He hasn't learned the lesson yet that there's suffering happens first and then glory. So Peter tries to drag Jesus down to the level of his own human thinking and aspirations. And I wonder if we are tempted at times to do that. Lord, are you sure that's the way things should go about? Well, I think, Lord, this might be a better way. Oh, I don't know, Lord. I don't know if I can trust you in this. We try to bring God down to our own level of human understanding. We try to redefine what it is that he wants to do. And we end up standing in the way of Jesus. No, Peter says, you will not go to Jerusalem. I'll stand in your way. But, but unfortunately for Peter, but fortunately for us, Jesus has the last word. And so we've seen this divine requirement and then we had the dubious response. And thirdly, we see a direct retort. So after Peter's challenge, right? This is what it says in your word, that, that, that Jesus turns to him and says, oh, you're right, Peter. I mean, after all, you're rock. You know better. You just made this great confession of faith. You've had things revealed to you from God. So, Peter, thank you, thank you. I needed that. Let me reconsider what it is I should say. Thankfully, that's not what Jesus did, because Jesus knows that there are other spiritual voices out there that are vying for our attention, for our hearts, for our ears, other sources of thinking, other ways of trying to do things that are contrary to the ways and will of God. And so Peter is operating on a human level here, not on a divine level, and so Jesus turns and says to him, get away from me. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you've looked at investing in certain portfolios with some of these investment companies, 
or you might see it on TV, magazine articles, and there'll be something in there as we'll talk about the potential growth and what you can do and how this will set you up for the future and how you'll be really successful. And then we'll have some type of statement here that'll say, past performance is not a guarantee of future results. It's the same in ministry. Peter had just done something well, good, a right confession, but that's not a guarantee of future results. There's still the, the requirement that we walk with the Lord, that we obey him, that we humble ourselves before his lordship, that we sacrifice ourselves and our time and our talent because after all, we belong to him, not the other way around. Peter's done some things well. He's not done all things well all the time. Past performance does not guarantee future results. When Peter speaks the truth and lives by it, he'll be used of God as he was marvelously in the early years of the church, as he was when God the Holy Spirit moved him to write two letters that have instructed and encouraged the church for 2,000 years. But now Peter is out over his skis, out beyond his ability. And so Jesus turns to him and says, move away from me. Move out of the way. I'm going to continue in the ministry that the Father has given me. You claim to speak the truth here, Peter, but I know that voice. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. Earlier in the gospel, according to Matthew, Satan tried to trick Jesus in the temptations in the wilderness. You can see that if you want to review it back in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. And in the last temptation that we see in Matthew chapter 4, Satan offers to give Jesus the power and the glory if he would but bow down and pay him homage. And what does Jesus say? He says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The temptation of Satan was to try to turn Jesus away from the path that he was on, the path that he must trace, the path that would lead to suffering and to the cross and to death. And get the glory without having to go through the pain and the suffering. He wants to trap Jesus. But Jesus knows better and defeats him. Then the parallel account in Luke 4, it says, Satan departed from him until an opportune time. He's looking for more chances to test Jesus. And here in Matthew 16, the opportunity presents itself and Jesus recognizes the voice where it's really coming from, where this thinking is originating. And he recognizes it in the voice of a close confidant. Satan, through Peter's intervention, is trying to turn Jesus away from Jerusalem and rebukes him. Says, no, no, glory, glory. Jesus says, no, or Jesus says, no, there must be suffering first. And it's a reminder to us today that there are many voices in the world today claiming spiritual truth, claiming understanding. Oh, we can teach you the secret things of God. We have a better way. They vie for our ears. They vie for our hearts. They vie for our attention. And they're not all of God. And they might even claim to be a Christian. They might even claim to be part of a ministry. They might even have a name that we might recognize. But Peter thought he was acting in the ways of God, and Jesus turns it on him and says, no, no, you're actually walking in the ways of the enemy. 
It says, get away from me, Satan. The same thing he had said in Matthew 4. Get away from me, Satan. He's warning Peter. Peter, a few verses ago, you spoke according to revelation revealed to you by the Father, but here you are speaking not from the Father. So beware. The suffering, the death, the resurrection of the Messiah are so essential to the plan of God that to hinder him from carrying them out is to do the work of none other than Satan himself. And we know that Satan doesn't tell the truth. We know that he's a liar. He's a deceiver. He speaks with a forked tongue. But he speaks in a way that sometimes our ears are drawn to move that way. That's why we need to be grounded in the word of God. That's why we need to humble ourselves before the word of God and be in the communion of saints and learn from each other and challenge each other and grow each other and help each other. Thomas Brooks was a Puritan preacher who wrote lengthy works on the onslaught of the devil against the soul of the Christian. And with great insight, he writes, Satan promises the best but pays with the worst. Satan promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. He promised Jesus' power and glory without suffering. And here Peter is saying the same thing. And Jesus recognized the source of it and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you have now moved from rock to a block. You are a hindrance to me. The word hindrance here, you'll recognize it as we transliterate it into English, is scandalon. You can hear a certain word that flows out of there. The word literally means stumbling stone. Or stumbling block. Peter, you're an obstacle to me. You're in the way of what I've come to do. Move out of the way for nothing can stop what it is that I will do. So the word can mean stumbling block or stumbling stone. It can also mean to put a trap in front of someone. And they're very similar. They just change a little bit in how they're used in their context. But they're, they're very similar in their meaning. I don't think any of us want to be called either a stumbling block or a trap in the way of Jesus. Because Jesus will do what the Father has sent him to do. And not even one of his disciples will tell him that he will not do it. I like that the Lord, in his goodness, puts examples like this in the word of God. Because we can relate. Because we know we're made of the same stuff. Limited understanding. Limited knowledge. Limited education. And sometimes we get out above our skis. And we fall. But as we learn from the example of Peter, he gets back up and goes back to Jesus. And that is what we can do. But we have to be willing to be corrected. We have to be willing to learn. We have to be willing to go forward. And so, what is the solution? Get your mind straight. So he says to Peter, For you are setting your mind on the things of God, but not on the things of man. Peter... You're focused in the wrong thing, in the wrong area, with the wrong emphasis, in the wrong timing. Focus on the things of God. And it's Jesus because he's going to take him on this journey. And then he's going to have to pour his Holy Spirit out upon them so that they'll actually grow and understand further after Jesus returns to heaven. But the things of God are things like hope and righteousness and virtue and justice and peace. But Jesus is the king. There is a real kingdom that will reign 
overall one day, that the kingdom of heaven is based on things that are spiritual and eternal and true. But Peter is caught in thinking of the things of men. Power and prestige and reputation and comfort and influence and all the things that we're tempted to run after ourselves. And in light of the kingdom of God then, light of the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness that it is, Peter's thinking is satanic because he's trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. As long as he thinks of the things of men, he's a stumbling block. When he was promised to be one of the things upon which Jesus would grow and form his church. The thoughts of God are higher than the thoughts of man. And all of us continually need that ongoing heart surgery where God is cleaning out things in our hearts that still need to go as we get closer and closer to the cross and to his holiness. And so we reminded in Isaiah 55 that the ways and thoughts of God are higher. And they're always stretching us and always causing us to go further as Jesus says, follow me. Jesus recognizes where this voice is coming from. And an especially insightful remark, Dr. Michael Wilkins says, Jesus recognizes here his old enemy in a new and even more dangerous form. For none are more formidable instruments of temptation than well-meaning friends who care more for our comfort than for our character. Jesus is always after our character that will become more like Christ, more like him. That's the goal of the Father. And sometimes we can get in the way of someone else's sanctification. Sometimes we can get in the way of our own sanctification because our minds are focused on the wrong things. There's a warning here. There's also hope. But we need to hear what Jesus is warning his people about with this example of Peter. No cross. No crown. Jesus had to go to the cross so that he would get the crown. And next week we're going to see that he calls us to the same thing. That we are to die picking up our own cross and following him, which will lead to a path of suffering and difficulty and putting things aside and living for the things of heaven and not the things of the earth. Because it's the same for each of us. No cross, no crown. The cross is essential and non-negotiable to the gospel. We need to beware of human thinking for to deny anything of the cross and the resurrection is to deny Jesus himself and so we, we need, all need to continue to learn and this is why Jesus as he's getting the disciples prepared for what is to come he also reminds us we who have known him perhaps for a long time that this is not a life on a bed of ease in Zion it's a life that's called to pursue him and his righteousness and his glory and his hope because he is our Lord and we belong to him. And because he has put his favor upon us, we serve him from a position of favor. And we love him because he first loved us. And we want to please him with our lives. So godly thinking reminds us to take Jesus at his word. That means we need to be people of the word. Cracking our Bibles regularly, opening them on our devices, reading, letting the word of God get into us as we get into the word. We need to preach the cross and all that it means and the hope of the resurrection. Jesus must suffer and die or no one will ever be saved. So we have had the privilege of hearing that know that that is the greatest news of all, that 
there was a Messiah who died and we can have eternal life. And what will our song be in heaven? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And that, that song will redound down through eternity. And that's why we celebrate missions. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why the church is here to make disciples, to point people to a savior. And we need help then to keep on growing in that understanding. So Paul exhorts us to set our, thing, our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He reminds us, he talks to the Philippians, to have the mind of Christ that seeks the purposes and goals of Christ above all with a reminder that we are in Christ. And if we're in Christ, he's building his church of which we are in and he's guiding and leading it. And so that corporate, that community, that above myself thinking needs to take place so that all of us will continue to grow in what that means to be the community of God and the church of Christ. Paul reminds us in Romans 12 that all of us are in need of having our minds renewed. And that requires a, just a daily ongoing obedience to his word, pouring into it, understanding it, living it, loving it, not denying it. Peter eventually got there, but not perfectly. If we continue on in the story, we'll be going to the book of Acts. It's Peter that's boldly preaching the gospel where he goes, and yet still fell at times. But Peter died a martyr's death. He was willing to die for Christ so that the word of Christ would continue to go forward. He understood that if the Savior was willing to go to Jerusalem and die, and that he could suffer and die so that Jesus would be heard by others. But in both cases, it's the same conclusion. No cross, no crown. These light and momentary afflictions that we go through do not compare at all to eternity. To the glories that await us and our great inheritance, which is Christ. So we're going to hear more about that. The Messiah says, I must go to Jerusalem and die and, be, and will be raised. And next week as he follows up, he says, now... You must pick up your cross and die so that you will truly live. And that's what we will look at next week. But until then, what are some lessons from today? Because Jesus was ready to go to Jerusalem for us, we are ready to go to the world for him. If we belong to him, he has a right to move our, our, us around on his grand chessboard, however he might want to do it so that he gets great glory. And you know what? To be a servant of Christ is to be truly free. The more we chase after the things of this earth, the more imprisoned we are. The more we serve Christ as his servant, the freer we are. But we're reminded because even the apostles could, could get things wrong, we need to commit to following God's will as he reveals it in his word. We're just a people that are surrendered to the revealed will of God as his spirit leads us in its understanding. On a practical note, because the mind is a battleground, and it is, we will focus on the things of God through the study of his word and the fellowship of, the, of his saints. And friends, beware of the voices you listen to throughout the week. There are a lot of voices that even for a season sound okay and then they slip in the lies, the deceitful things. And, and you can suddenly sober up one day and realize you're way over here when you thought you were on the straight path. Lastly, by his grace, we commit to building the rock of truth and to not be stumbling blocks 
build on Jesus as the cornerstone, as he works in and through us, that we will do all that is needed so that the body of Christ is built up. Saints are equipped for ministry. The Spirit is working among us so that people are hearing about the gospel and lives are being transformed. And it would be those who march in step with the Savior and not those who are stumbling blocks in his way. Let us pray. Father, as we hear words like this and as they pierce to our hearts and as they hit us hard from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're also thankful that if we're in Christ, this is a reminder that ultimately it's all about him and what he has done and what he has suffered on our behalf. But Father, remind us this week that we belong to you. And as a result, then we are freed to serve you wherever that may be and whatever that may look like. We're not asking for your stamp of approval on our plans, Father. We lay them at your feet and say, not our will, but yours be done. And then we turn and we repent and say, Father, forgive us for those things we've hung on to or those things that we've wanted to do, for the attitudes that percolate in all of our hearts the thoughts of our minds that are not worthy of our Savior. Father, we confess our sins. We are sorry that we have done those things, and we thank you for a great forgiveness in Christ. And then, Father, remind us that your word is true, and you speak to us through your word, and that we can grow and just enjoying you more and more because of who you are. So in this week, Father, help us to listen to good voices, even your voice as you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name.